we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS, the news, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend, Sam Rosenbaum, discuss all the hot topics out of the NDIS. Hi, Sam. How are you going? Going awesome, thanks, Hannah. How about yourself? I'm all right. Did you know glasses have to be cleaned, like, all the time? Well, it is a very useful thing to be able to see outside of your glasses instead of driving down a highway with a big smudge mark on it and it's slightly raining and you're like, oh, maybe I should clean them. <laughs> I guess you <laughs> know this. Not talking from personal experience <laughs> in any way, shape or form. This is the new thing about wearing glasses that I found. And I'm like, oh, I have to clean these things every day? <laughs> what is this? Yeah, my favourite trick with cleaning glasses is uh, when I'm making my morning coffee. Thankfully, I've got one of those like nice little button presses with a steam wand. I just float my glasses underneath, give it a thing and wipe it down and presto, nice clean glasses. Mm. It's my morning ritual. Coffee and glasses cleaning. (laughs) (laughs) Don't I live a riveting life? (laughs) Oh, it's important to have rituals. It is very important. We had a live show recently. It was awesome. A fantastic uh, little show and fantastic experience. And it was awesome to actually get to meet some of our listeners and uh, see them face to face and have that interaction. It was a fantastic episode. Yeah. And one of the things that we did is we asked questions from the audience and the feedback we got was that that was really useful and people loved that idea. So... Sam, we've taken that to Patreon. Yeah. If you sign up to our Patreon for $5 a month, that's just $5. It's so cheap. Less than a Starbucks coffee. Yep. You will get to ask us a question that we will answer on our next episode. This also means that we will have a new segment at the top of each episode. Well, each episode that someone asks a question, (laughs) that's the proviso. So today we are going to answer a question from Patreon. Awesome. Let's hear it, Hannah. We had a question about when a provider emails support coordinators, what should be in that email? Now, Sam, as a support coordinator, I get these emails all the live long day. Remembering back in my support coordination management days, it was searching through them was a bane of my existence. Yeah. And sometimes I get a lot of phone calls too. By the by, I prefer email because a lot of the time I'm on the road and anyway, an email is something helpful that I can then refer back to. So what would I prefer in that email? I want to know, number one, if you are registered or not, because it it doesn't essentially matter to me, but I need to know for my participants because sometimes they are NDIA managed. Okay, next. I need to know 
if you have a niche and what makes you unique because it is far better as a support coordinator if you focus on one support or one cohort of people and I know that then you do that really well. This is something that um, Karen Lorenzon hammers in quite a lot. Yes. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about uh, your niches and how to market that, go hit up Karen. Yes. The services you provide. Now, this does not mean give me a grand list of all the group registration numbers that you have. I don't care about that. (laughs) I want to know what services you actually provide and in what locations. Are you just in a small area, which is, again, totally fine, but I need to know that. Next is what age do you support? Do you support the under nines on early childhood or only over nines on the full scheme? Do you support only 18 plus? Again, totally fine. Are you better at supporting people who are 40 plus maybe? All of these things are really helpful for me to understand what you are really good at and which participants I would suggest you to. Lastly is what is your referral process? Because if you just tell me about your brilliant service and I go, oh, that sounds amazing. And then I go, wait, I don't know. It's not clear on the website. There's not a clear referral form on the website or something. How to do a referral within the email is just so much easier. And bonus points if you do add the referral form in your email, if it's a referral form. If it's on your website, that's fine, but just let me know it's on your website. So just to sum up, are you registered or not? What is your niche? slash what makes you unique, what services you provide, the locations you provide them in, what age you support, and what is your referral process. Great advice there, Hannah. And now we're going to do the news. Huzzah! News. So. All right. So the first one that has come out recently is there's a new pricing arrangements and pricing limits, uh, limits review for the annual pricing review coming out. Uh, The annual pricing review determines any changes that are required to the NDIS process, uh, sorry, any changes that are required to the NDIS pricing arrangements. So they ensure that they provide value for money, deliver fair and consistent participant outcomes, support sustainable NDIS market growth, and promote the delivery of high quality and innovative supports. The consultation paper is looking at four key areas this year, which is supports delivered by disability support workers, therapy supports, once again, we're looking at support coordination, and the NDIS cancellation policy. Providers out there, especially on that NDIS cancellation policy, we know that it's kind of vague and it limits to very specific around the seven-day sort of points. So if you're one of these providers that get called out quite regularly, please put something through on it because I would love to see more clarity because I'm doing that too, because sending something through as well. But again, from the support coordination side, we definitely need more uh, more voices, more numbers around how the sort of costs impacts organisations and how the agency could better facilitate. Because once again, we're I think 
three... Four years. Four years. Since we had a pricing increase for support coordinators. So maybe, you know, get on that. And the cancellation policy, I understand why that got put in place because the Shad's award changed. However, it... I think it negatively affects participants because no human being knows that they're going to be sick in seven days and I think it's become stressful for some of my participants because of that. Now, not all providers insist on that, thankfully, but the ones that do, I totally understand why they do. Like, that's that's the thing that you have to do. But I find it really difficult because the seven days is just too yeah. long. And, and if we're being re- realistic, it doesn't cost that 100% to cancel a support, work, a, a support worker or, or reissue. So there could be options to bring down that 100%, extend it out. My, my thing around it is... It cuts off at seven days. What happens, for example, with All Access Pass? We're forking out quite literally tens of thousands of dollars to secure equipment, to secure uh, camping equipment, to secure the events, the locations, that type of stuff. So if someone cancels at the 17-day mark sort of thing, then it becomes a very costly ex exercise for us and trying to refill that type of position for the type of programs that we're running in that type of short time frame is quite literally almost next to impossible as long as we've got a wait list and we haven't actually had that happen yet um <laughs> hoping it will but um yeah it's it's there's lots of stuff that could be done to improve the cancellation policy to make it more to still keep that that support worker payment in place so we're not so providers aren't having to pay that staff member out of their own, own pockets but at the same time not being completely detrimental to the participants and the participants plan especially when you've got that evolving healthcare needs and if some uh, episodic sort of really sickness it does have that uh, disadvantage in those sort of situations yep so if you want to make a submission on the consultation paper, you have to do so by Sunday the 3rd of March for providers and Sunday the 17th of March for participants. So you don't have long. You need to get on this right now and yeah, make, jump on the, make Yeah, jump on the website, uh, check out the terms of reference in the consultation papers for the pricing re- annual pricing review for 2023-2024 and then get those submitted. And, of course, all the links to every news item will have a link in the description, so don't stress about trying to find it. The Independent Advisory Council has published their annual report. It is also available in Easy Read and as an Auslan video translation. The annual report tells you about the advice and work the IAC did during 2022 to 2023. It highlights the IAC's achievements for the year and its work to bring the views of people with disabilities, their families, carers and sector experts to the heart of the NDIS. 
it is worth having a quick look at this if you can. It's a great report. Yeah, the IAC does some really good work. There's some really fantastic members on that. I just read a little bit more information for anyone that doesn't know about the IAC. Uh, it's made up of a principal member and 12 other members and supported by a number of subject matter experts within the disability sector. Uh, the voices of They are also voices of participants at highest level, bringing skills, expertise and knowledge that will help the IAC perform its functions. So if you'd like to know more, please go check out their website or uh, click the link in our info. The NDIA is sharing information about about in assistive technology for children, the effectiveness of assistive technology interventions to support children. This snapshot focuses on supporting children younger than nine years old with assistive technology who have physical or intellectual disability or developmental delay. Goals focused on communication, mobility and participation. We undertook a systematic search of published literature databases to identify systematic reviews and or meta-analysis, scoping reviews or evidence. So have a look at that report. They talked about the importance of early assistive technology intervention, the effectiveness of assistive technology and the limits of available research and identifies areas for future research. The NDIA's research and evaluation branch has also completed a comprehensive and systemic review of meta-analysis and quantitative studies. And there's some really big words as well that they use here, but essentially they've looked at a bunch of uh, already established research papers into the effectiveness of assistance dogs for people with autism. They have also presented the studies in two former reports uh, that helps people with lived, uh, go through people with lived experience of assistance dogs for people with autism and their families, and as well as the benefits of assistive dogs or pets for people on the autism spectrum. Uh, so this is a very... We, we know getting assistive animals in the NDIS space is really hard. We also know that there's there are benefits that people experience from having these things, although the report when we were reading through it kind of just leaves us at exactly the same space as where we are right now. So uh, They said that essentially assistance dogs that have been specifically trained and accredited as assistance dogs showed no scientific benefit to children slash people with autism over a regular pet. Now, I personally call bullshit on this. Yes. <laughs> because this doesn't, obviously, anecdote Anecdotal evidence is not scientific evidence. So, of course, I hear what they're saying and they've done the research. So, anyway, I think a really well-trained dog that specifically is trained to support that person in very specific ways is very different to your regular family pet. And there's there are definitely benefits to having a very specifically trained pet over yeah. a regular pet. I think pet. about, like, my, I've got a border collie named JD for Just Dog, and any time that I get kind of emotional or or 
overworked. He is the most useless thing in the world. Love him dearly. He's super cute and cuddly. But if I'm having a meltdown, he wants nothing to do with me. So <laughs> there has to be benefits for having a trained dog that knows how to work through or decompression or sensory or or just sit there next to me in, if I'm having a little meltdown and I get to cuddle him. But he kind of goes off and finds a corner and fills my emotions as well. So he's definitely not a good assistance dog. <laughs> yeah. So that's why that makes no sense to me. We have touched on this in previous news episodes, but we just wanted to remind you that from the 1st of January, there are new pricing arrangements for group and centre-based social and community participation supports. So make sure that if that's a service you provide, that you are across that and have transitioned to the new pricing arrangements for that. There is a new consent form on the NDIS website. Now, for support coordinators, when you fill out the new consent form, it's a lot more straightforward than the old one, first of all. But it's also helpful if your participant is on pace to add, there's a box where you can add free text and it's helpful to add that the participant gives consent for you to link support providers to their relationships within PACE. So there's some PACEY words for you. <laughs> oh, that PACE system. Inserts eye roll here. Um, the next one is a very important thing that uh, providers need to be well and truly aware of if we are not already doing so around disaster and emergency management. Providers should have emergency plans in, in place for participant to address when there is a natural disaster or other emergency. So this needs to look at where that, where that participant might need located, whether or not they're in a flood zone, whether they're in the high fire risk, whether they're in their bush, how far they are away from hospital or medical supports, all those kind of things, and what, they, what supports they need if that emergency may occur or look like it might be occurring. You might need to help move a participant away from that area or transition to another family in a different outside of that emergency zone. But you really need to have a good understanding of the different types of emergencies that your participant may face within their home or within their environment and what supports they need to have in place to support them in that. You can find more information about the about this on the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission and the practice standards relating to emergency disaster management. Or shameless plug, give me a buzz. <laughs> I can we can work through it. <laughs> Don't forget, it also can include things like organising at the beginning of disaster season a go bag so that you can very quickly evacuate. Other things to pop in there is what are your evacuation triggers. So is it when the bushfire warning system gets too extreme? Is it when they say it's a cyclone's coming and it's a category three or is it at two? You know, you've got to have these conversations ahead of time so that the participant knows exactly what's going on and feels empowered because they've also let you know they're willing to wait out a cyclone at level three, but not four, you know, type thing. 
So make sure you have a look into that. Uh, the next thing we've got out is school leavers employment support and provider quarterly report has been released. The report on the outcomes of school leavers employment supports. It looks at data submitted from the NDIA across 2022 and by 139 school leavers employment support providers to uh, who provide support to over 5,700 participants nationwide. The report looks at which participants have received these supports, milestones that each participant has achieved, and key factors that have led to successful employment outcomes. The report, we saw a positive shift in the number of participants finishing with open or supported employment, which grew from 29% in June 2022 to 31% in December 20, of the same year. You can download a report from the School Leavers Employment Support page and we're always making, the NDIA is always working to make the reports better and if you do have any suggestions about those reports, please email them. Sam, you went to the NDIS Review Town Hall and I missed it because I had another meeting with a participant. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened, maybe who was there as well, some of those things? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, the the town hall in Brisbane was hosted by Ellie Deschamelier. Sorry if I've got that said that wrong. Uh, It was a hybrid event running online and there was close to over, I think the number was either 500 people in the room and close to a thousand people on uh, in total so another 500 in line um they're also saying that we had the most amount of questions out of every state and we also had more than the combined questions from the sydney and the melbourne event so brisbane knights and queenslanders are very interested to hear more about this review it was a, a running theme and there were some really good questions that were posed around uh, like kind of the housing and living living changes, around the shared supports. It was, there was a lot of kind of public backlash on social media after the events where it felt more of a we're getting told rather than a town hall environment. And it really did have that feel. Look, we had questions online and they, but they probably only addressed three or four of the questions. Considering there was more than Melbourne and Sydney combined yeah. and they only answered three or four. Well, they, they did kind of sort of preface this going, look, we've got a lot of questions from Melbourne and Sydney that we're going to utilise to answer this. But yeah. they didn't necessarily address any of the live ones. They are going through them and answering them and collating them in some sort of place that I haven't quite seen yet because time is not my friend. Um, but yeah, so along with uh, Ellie, there was uh, the co-chair Bruce Bonahady and we also had cr- review members Christine Dean, Douglas Hurd, and also a, a closing remarks from Bill Shorten. The, it was a good event. It didn't really tell me anything new, kind of raised some more concerns around that housing and living co- sort of conversation that's been having around sort of the what feels like restricting choice and control, especially around registered providers. There's a recommendation in the review that participants would be one to three in housing and that's just it and mm. everyone just has to deal with that. So it's one support worker to three participants. That's the re ratio and a lot of people are looking at that as a return to group housing which is what the NDIS was supposed to 
removed. Reverse. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, look, it really has scared a lot of people at home and, and kind of almost rightfully so because as we've pointed out before, it does have a direct opposition to the guidance coming out of the Disability Royal Commission in this space. And there are lots of experts and lots of people arguing around this. And look, Bill Shorten and the review were kind of, for lack of a better terminology, dismissing these concerns. That we're not going back to group housing and we're not doing this. It was, they, they mentioned some stuff around that one to three being, it doesn't have to be in like three people in one home, but you're still trying to share supports and it really does seem like a mess. This specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There was no real clarity around what this is going to look like. But again, the proviso at the moment is it's a five-year implementation. There's lots of stuff that's got to happen. There's lots of, look, the government is 100% committed to co-development or Mm co-design. I think it's more of a wait and see and people out there need to probably yell a little bit harder about this. Because, yeah, it just seems like a bit of a mess overall. Providers are confused, participants are even more confused, family members are hitting their head against hard surfaces and reliving trauma from 10, 15 years ago, which I can fully understand there. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing that back to us. I think that's a real analysis of of what went down there because I, I saw too a lot of the social media fallout from it and and I think you have summed up what a lot of people are feeling and still that concern around everyone needing to potentially get registered and then what that means for people who want independent support workers. Yeah, well, it also has a big risk around those people that self-manage, like yourself with with the family. And how does that all work? There's also a lot of stuff happening in the payment processing sort of system that's meant to make life a little bit easier and and support this process. But from what I've heard along the grapevines, those aren't what the trials and testing aren't, aren't good. And I, technology is not a strong po- suit of any government when rolling out. We just need to experience pace and I'm still having trouble getting independent support coordinators registered to get on because when we call the agency, they've got no flipping idea. No. And the, the website directly goes, you need to speak to us and this is how we do it and we'll get you sorted. And then you send an email to some stupid email account that who knows gets it. And I would think I've, I've had a couple of clients send through multiples and we're still not getting any response about it. It's an absolute schmozzle. The fact that the staff at the NDIA don't understand PACE to be able to answer our questions, I think is the biggest problem with the rollout because mm-hmm. it wouldn't be nearly so hard if you had people at the NDIA who could answer questions and knew what was going on. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like the agency have supported the call centre staff to be able to understand this because the call centre staff essentially when they have a question, they look at the same literature that we've got readily available and there's really not a lot of good literature. But if you think about it, historically... The agency call centre has been a joke of this industry where we'll call up, you'll ask a question, 
you'll get an answer. Call up again in half an hour, ask the same question to somebody else and you'll get a completely different response. Mm. So I, unfortunately I'm not overly surprised that the call center doesn't have a, have a flipping clue, but it just emphasizes the joke of what they've sort of become historically and infuriates way too many of us, I am pretty sure. Yeah, and the web chat is not <gasps> much better. <laughs> I hate web chats to start off with. I don't use them, but I, well, I don't have the attention span to wait for somebody to text me back. But, yeah, it's, they've got a lot of work to do. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening to this news episode. We hope you learned something and think about joining our Patreon. Yeah, please do. Send us our questions. To support the the further production of this podcast because it does cost money. Yeah, and money doesn't grow on trees, (laughs) unfortunately. Bye. Huzzah. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.